I hope you brought your Bible with you. I hope you'll be back with us this evening as well and bring a Bible then. You might be reading 1 Timothy chapter 4 before I study tonight. We'll be working our way through 1 Timothy chapter 4 tonight. So if you will, open your Bible to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John chapter 5. There we want to talk about witnesses for Christ. And that is the testimony that could be given for Christ. And that is the term that is witnesses that is used here in our text. In fact, you might drop down to verse 31 and 32. Where Jesus said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. So Jesus said, if I alone tell you I am the Son of God, that doesn't make that true. But if there is a compounding number of witnesses that can give testimony, then it could be said to be true. On the principle that we read in the Old Testament concerning the testimony of two or three witnesses, it is true. This whole chapter is devoted to witnesses for Christ, evidence for the deity of Christ. Here's some things that we're learning from this text. We learn something about the deity of Christ. That's the main thrust. We learn from this chapter how witnesses are to be used, and Jesus makes, employs other witnesses and calls them to record. And how that is not just that he claimed to be something, but there was evidence to be presented. So we learn lessons about evidence throughout. But some other things we'll learn as we go along. Let's start with verses 1 to 18. Here is the witness of a miracle of healing. Jesus performs a miracle of healing. And that gives evidence, as all miracles did, that he performed, that his claim is true. Now he'll make a claim later in the chapter, that is at verse 17 and 18. When questioned about this, but he first gives the evidence of the healing that's found here in our text. So let's begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these days, a great multitude of sick people, blind and lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he already had been in that condition for a long time. And he said to him, do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, it is, uh, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said, take up your bed and walk. And they said to him, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who he was. For Jesus had withdrawn 
a multitude being in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Let's talk about some things with reference to this miracle that was performed. Let's talk about the miracle itself. Let's start with the setting because that's what verses 1 through 4 talk about is the setting of this miracle. It takes place in Jerusalem. The text says by the sheep market, if you're reading from the King James, or the sheep gate is more proper, though the word gate is not in the text and has been supplied by translators. It seems to be in the northeastern part of the city at close to the sheep gate, which led to the sheep market, that there was a pool there that had porches all around, the text says, that is to cover the people as they sat by the water. There was a great multitude of people, according to verse 3, that were sick and that were blind and lame and paralyzed, and they were waiting for the moving and the stirring of the water. Now, if you have footnotes in your Bible, if you have center reference column, you might notice that there is a question at the end of verse 3, the second part of verse 3, and all of verse 4, as we mentioned in Bible class about another reference, it'll say the NU omits this. What is the NU? The Nestles United, uh, United Bible Society text. That is the minority text based upon two of the more ancient manuscripts, the Vatican and the Sinaiticus. That, that text omits that. Others will rele relegate it to footnote saying it's not, but it appears in the King James and the New King James translation. So what is this? Well, it might be what some might refer to as a gloss, or at least some um, scrabble commentary, perhaps maybe what it is. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that there was an angel that actually stirred the water, causing miraculous healing, so that whoever jumped into the water, if that was the case, then, then indeed an angel did that. It's missing from some of the manuscripts, and it's thought to be more added as an explanation because without verse 3 and 4, that section, that people were sitting by the water waiting for something. And now let's drop down to verse 7. There was a man saying that there, I have no one to put me in the water when the water is stirred. Well, the idea is that the water had some medicinal purpose, or at least there was some cleansing power or some healing power of the water. Very possible, as some have suggested, that the water had an intermittent spring so that there was an occasional and intermittent stirring of the water. So as they wait for the stirring of the water, then they jump in thinking, or whoever can get in thinks that there is some healing powers of the water. It seems to be more of a comment of what's really going on, of why people were sitting by the water. And so verse 3 and 4 is more of a comment and doesn't state that, in other words, it's stating this is what the people believe. Not so much that that's really what happened, but this is what the people believed that happened. Now, so beginning at verse 5, now that's kind of the setting of where, where this takes place and Jesus comes by that pool. Now, there is the actual healing in verses 5 through 9, and let's see what happens in verses 5 through 9. There was a man who had an infirmity for 38 years. It doesn't say he was 38 years old, but it says he had an infirmity for 38 years. We'll see a little bit later, perhaps this came later in, uh, after he'd been, been around for a little while, and we'll see perhaps why later in the context. But when Jesus saw him lying there, 
and in the condition, and those who'd been in that condition for a long time, and you might underline in your Bible that Jesus asked him this question, do you want to be made well? That implies some people don't want to be made well. Do you want to be made well? He waits for a response from the young man, or from the man, as to whether he wants to be made well. Well, we learn a practical thing from that. Not everybody wants to be made well. Even a physical infirmity. Some people enjoy bad health. As Andy Griffith once said about one of the people on the episode, well, she's enjoyed bad health for years. Some people enjoy bad health. They like to talk about their health. They want the attention concerning their bad health. And so they want that. They don't want to be well. They don't want to be cured. And if you suggest maybe they're being cured, they want to remind you I'm still sick. I, I want to be sick. I want to not be made well. The same sometimes is true spiritually. They don't really want to be made well. They don't want to get rid of the problems. Sometimes people don't really want to be cured and do what it takes to be cured of marital problems or whatever the case may be. They don't really want to be made well. Jesus asked him that. Well, notice at verse 7, he really claims to be a victim and thinks of himself as a victim and really blaming others, that I don't have anyone around to put me into the water so that when the water is stirred, others jump before me. And I'm left out, I'm paraphrasing. And others step down before me. So at verse 8, Jesus told him to rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, why does he tell him to rise, take up his bed and walk? That gives evidence that indeed a miracle has been cured. He didn't tell him, well, you'll be cured, so whenever you get ready to leave or someone comes to get you, you'll be all right to walk off. But he walks in front of everyone, demonstrating that indeed a miracle has been performed. Now at verse 9, to finish that section, he immediately took up his bed and he walked, and it was the Sabbath day, the text said. So a miracle has been performed. Now let's talk about the objection to that miracle in verses 10 to 16. What was the objection to the miracle? Well, there were two objections. First, the objection was, it's not lawful to carry your bed on the Sabbath. So notice beginning at verse 10, the Jews said to the man that was cured, it is the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. You're not supposed to be carrying around your bed on the Sabbath. They viewed that as work. Now they'd go feed their ox, they would water their donkey, they would uh, lift the ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath day and th not think that is violation of the Sabbath law, but carrying your bed is work on the Sabbath. That wasn't a violation of the Sabbath law at all. And so he said, well, the man that made me well is the one that told me to carry my bed. Well, who is he? Well, he didn't know because Jesus has disappeared in the crowd. Now, what I want you to notice was the objection was it's not lawful to carry your bed on the Sabbath. What they're doing is ignoring the evidence. They're ignoring the miracle. They give no attention to the fact that a man has been cured and now a man who is walking who for 38 years has not been able to do that. Here's the second objection. It's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. They ask him, who did this? And finally he finds out who it is and he comes back and he says, afterward he, Jesus found him. Notice verse 14 before I get down to verse 15. That Jesus found him in the temple and he said, see you've been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. What is that about? I do not think that as some have suggested that that infirmities come as a result of you commit sin and so therefore God causes physical problems to come upon you. It very well may be that his infirmity was because of something he had done that was sinful that resulted in some injury of some sort. That's possible. Others suggested that what he's talking about here is that all disease and all death and all physical consequences came as a result of sin and he's reminding him that you go and don't you keep on sinning. That may be the case, though I think the former is probably a better explanation of that. But there may be some sin that he's committed that resulted in this, but he tells him, lest a worse thing come up on you. 
That is, as a result of sin, something worse than this infirmity, which may be a consequence to what you have done, somehow, as a result of what you have done, come upon you. But again, they're ignoring the miracle, is what I want you to notice now beginning at verse 15. At verse 15, they departed, and he told uh, the Jews that it was Jesus. Now verse 16. The Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So here is the miracle, here is the objection. Again, both cases in the objections, they're ignoring the miracle. Now verses 17 and 18, Jesus gives his defense for doing this on the Sabbath. And what does he say? Well, here is what he says at verse 17. He said, my father has been working to now and I've been working. My father in heaven works and I work. What I did was right, what I did was lawful, what I did in healing this man on the Sabbath is not anything wrong because my father has been working until now and I work. Now notice at verse 18 he's claiming that indeed he is the son of God. He said, that the text says, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because not only did he break the Sabbath, which he really didn't do, but also that God was his father making him equal with God. Now you might underline in your Bible at verse 18, equal with God. Here I just got a definition of what it means that Jesus is the son of God. He said, my father works and I work, verse 17. They understood he was claiming God was his father, not in the sense that all of us say that God is our father, God is our creator, but he's claiming to have a special relationship with God and he's claiming that he is the son of God. In other words, the prophesied one of the Old Testament. And they understood that if you are the son of God, that makes you equal with God, that makes you deity. So Jesus has just made a claim of deity. So we have a miracle that has been performed. We have an objection which ignores the miracle. And Jesus' defense was, I am deity and I have the right to do that. Now then, let's go to verses 19 to 29. This is a longer section. So let's talk, or uh, a lengthy section at least, not longer than the first, but it is a lengthy section as far as the number of items that Jesus lists. So Jesus now gives witness to himself. He's been called into question. A miracle has been performed. He's been called on the carpet. He's going to give a defense of himself. And so he's called as if in a court record. He comes and he defends himself and he is his first witness. So what does he say? Well, let's begin at verse 19 now and read through verse 29. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you might marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who has sent him. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, and the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those that hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, and has granted that to the Son to have life in himself. And he's given authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. 
Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all are in the graves will hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now what did Jesus just say? Well, he listed a number of things that he claims to be true. Now what's he doing? Well, he's giving witness of himself because there is that testimony to be given, number one. But number two, he's making claims that if he then can prove that they ought to accept and believe these claims. Now, what is he saying? Well, first of all, he says, the son does nothing of himself, but he does what he, the, he sees the father do. Go back to verse 19. The son, he said, does nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. I'm doing whatever I see the father do. He's making a claim of a special relationship with the father. Secondly, notice in verse 20. The father loves the son and shows him all things. Again, claiming a special relationship with the Father. Notice furthermore, verse 21, the Son gives life as the Father. That's a bold claim. That just as the Father gives life, spiritual life, the Son gives life, just like the Father does. He's making a claim that I can do what God does. He's fulfilling the, or that he's showing a connection with his claim of deity. I can give life just like the Father gives life. Notice verse 22, the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. So the judgment in the end of time is going to be executed by the son of God. God has given all judgment to the son. So the father has given judgment to me. Well, furthermore, what does he say? Verse 23, if you don't honor the son, you don't honor the father. There is such a connection between me and the father that if you don't honor me, you're not honoring God the father which they claimed to do. The Jews did, by the way. Verses 24 and 25. You must believe in Jesus' words to have everlasting life. Notice verse 24. He who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. So you have to believe in me in order to have eternal life. Again, a claim of deity. Now notice verse 26. The son has life as the father does. Now that's not talking about, I think, that the son has eternal life, just like the father does. He, it may be a claim of, of, of his eternal nature. But it seems to be a claim that as the Father can dispense life, eternal life, that He can dispense spiritual life, so the Son can dispense spiritual life. So the Son has life just like the Father has life. Furthermore, God has dispensed, or, or that is judgment, He has the authority to execute judgment. It goes back to what He said in verse 22. Well, let's go further. Notice in verses 28 and 29, all that are the dead... Look at verse 28, do not marvel at this, the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear his voice, and they shall come forth, they that have done good to the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now I want to go back and pick out part of those, because he's making a number of claims, but notice the bold claims that he makes, that in the end of time, all the dead will be raised at my voice. I have the authority to execute judgment in the end of time. I can dispense spiritual life like the Father does. All judgment has been committed to me. And consequently, you have to believe in me to have eternal life. Yes, I am claiming to be equal with God, is what he's saying in 19 to 29, just like you said I was at verse 18. So what have we seen so far? There's the witness of a miracle of healing, verses 1 to 18. There is the witness to himself. But he said there are other witnesses. Let's begin at verse 30 and read through verse 39. He said... I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, my judgment is righteous. Because I did not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, 
And I know that the witness which you witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and you, he bore witness of the truth. Yet I not receive the testimony from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself, all who sent me, has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Now, let's go to verses 30 and 31. He's talking about other witnesses. Verses 30, 31, and 32, Jesus says it takes more than self-witness to be true. Everybody understands the testimony of two or three witnesses are essential to establish something as being true. Let's go down to verse 30. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. In other words, if I'm telling you I'm the Son of God, but I'm the only one that makes that claim, no one else could say that, no other witness could be found. God doesn't say that. The Old Testament doesn't say that. The Holy Spirit doesn't reveal that. Then it's not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that his witness is true, which he witnesses of me. Now, what does he say? Well, here's the first witness he calls to record. Again, like a court case. I've given testimony and given you evidence that indeed I am the Son of God. But let me call someone else to the record. And call someone else to the stand, and let's let John the Baptist give testimony. Now, there was a time in which they rejoiced in John and delighted in what John said, and they viewed him as a great light. He's going to tell them that. So let's see what he says about John the Baptist. Back to verse 33. He said that he bore witness of the truth. And I did not receive testimony from man. That sounds almost contradictory, though it's not, to verse 33. What he's saying is, you're the one who sent to John and asked John questions. The Jews had done that. His point at verse 34 is that I do not receive testimony from man, meaning that what John said... John was saying by inspiration, what John said was given by the direction of God. And we'll give evidence of that here in just a moment. And I say these things to you that you might be saved. Now notice at verse 35, he said he was a burning and a shining light. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in the light. That is, when John came on the scene, great crowds went after him. When John came on the scene, people marveled at him. In fact, they wanted to know, are you the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Are you the coming one or do we look for another, John? Luke 7. They were delighting in him. But then that faded. Because he kept pointing in a different direction. Well, Isaiah 40 in verse 3 was a prophecy about John the Baptist that he would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's exactly what he was doing. But I want to pay close attention to John chapter 1. So put a mark or a finger in John 5. Let's back up about four chapters and go to John chapter 1. And see the testimony of John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, the text said. That's John the Baptist we're talking about. And this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. That was John's mission. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, deity, which was in the beginning, verse 1, was made flesh and dwelt among us. So when Jesus came to earth... Verse 15 now, John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me before he, because he was before me. So John gave testimony, this one that came in the flesh, that's the one I've been talking about. Let's go further, look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. 
And when they asked him, saying, Why do you baptize if you're not the Christ or Elijah the prophet? And John answered, saying, I baptize with water, but there, there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me. He's preferred before me whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to lose. Look at verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Look at verse 33. He said, I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize, that is the Father, said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I saw and I testified that this is the Son of God. There was the testimony of John. John said, I saw it. I was sent as a messenger, and the one that sent me told me to watch for the evidence, and I saw the evidence, and indeed this is the Son of God. So he said, not only do I make that claim, but John the Baptist will tell you that. And by the way, by the way, go back to verse 35 of our text in John 5. He was a burning and a shining light, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in the light. You were all excited about John one time. You were all stirred up about how great John was. But you didn't accept his testimony. Verse 36, he said, here's another witness. This is the beauty of John 5, at least in my mind, is how it methodically unfolds. That here was a miracle he was challenged, and then there was a claim. Then Jesus defends himself, and then he calls four other witnesses to the stand. Here's the second of the four. Look at verse 36. But I have greater witness than John's. Here's something even stronger than what. Now, John's testimony was true. It was valid. It was important. So is his own testimony. But here is something greater than John. And what was that? For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Like what? Let's take the same book we're talking about. Go back to chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but just you know the, the, the story in John chapter 2 where the first miracle that was performed in Cain of Galilee was turning water to wine. Go to chapter 3. Just two chapters back from where our text here. Remember when Nicodemus came to him? Said that, that uh, you are a teacher come from God because no one can do the signs which you do unless God's with him. I'm hearing about these miracles, hearing about the works, and, and I marvel at that. You must be from God. And then another one that I would cite would be our very text in John 5. He just worked a miracle. That's what's in question here. There was a man for 38 years had had an infirmity. And Jesus tells him, rise, take up your bed and walk. Those who were the antagonists to the miracle did not deny the miracle. In fact, they rebuked him for, for walking on the Sabbath, I mean, carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. Who, who did this to you? Who made you well? Totally ignore the miracle. And then the end of this book, by the way, for a footnote, the Gospel of John could well be called the miracles of Jesus, because that's the, the storyline. So when we get to the end of the book, John chapter 20, 30, and 31, that many other uh, miracles and wonders, many other signs that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, this is just a, a smattering of the kinds of miracles and wonders and signs that he did. But these were written that you might believe. Here's the record of the miracles. Okay, so now we have three witnesses. Jesus himself, and he's called two more. And there's a third witness he calls to the record, to the stand. And that's the Father himself. He said the Father himself will give testimony. 
Look at verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. That is this present audience. There were some who heard his voice. Sinai, for example. At the baptism of Jesus, we'll talk about in a moment. At the Mount of Transfiguration, they'd heard his voice. This present audience had not heard his voice. Nor have you seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent you did not believe. Now we'll get to a couple of instances where the father had specifically said that. But, but, but here's the point. He said, you Jews, you claim, you, you reject me and you don't claim that I, you don't believe who I am. But you claim to believe in Jehovah God. You claim to believe in the God of the Old Testament. But you don't believe him either because he sent me. And if you'd believed him, you would have accepted me. So what did the Father say? Matthew chapter 3. Remember at the baptism of Jesus that a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. Remember that? That was God's pronouncement. This is my son. Remember at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, 5. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. So on two occasions, the Father had thundered from heaven saying, this is my son, identifying Jesus as the son of God. Let's go back to John chapter 5. Jesus is not through. He calls another witness to the, to the stand. John will tell you. The miracles will tell you. The Father himself has told you. But the Old Testament scriptures will tell you that. Look at verse 39. Search the scriptures. That term is used with reference. To my knowledge, at least, to the writings of the Old Testament that were inspired. That is, when, when the Bible refers to something as scripture, it wasn't just some writing, graphe. It had to do with that which was inspired. That was the view of Jesus and the apostles. Second Peter 1 would be evidence of that. But nonetheless, look at verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. You have great confidence in the Old Testament scriptures. And you Jews, you search through those because you think you have eternal life by abiding in the scriptures. In fact, they reminded others, you've got to keep the law. So go back and study those scriptures that you have such confidence in. Even if you want to ignore John, you want to ignore what the Father had said, you want to ignore uh, the miracles, then go back to the Old Testament scriptures and what you're going to find is that they testify of me. Well, let's drop down to verse 45. Do you think... That I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. Every Jew had great confidence in God the Father, they claim, in Moses and in Abraham. Those were great characters. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Now what's he talking about? Well, let's look at a couple of other references. Let's go to Acts chapter 10 and in verse 43. In preaching to the Gentiles... In preaching to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, to him all the prophets give witness that in his name whoever believes on him shall have a remission of sins. The prophets had foretold of the coming of the Messiah. Well, we could give a sampling of that. We won't take the time to notice all the details. Psalm 16 foretold of his resurrection. Perhaps Jesus is thinking in 45, 46, and 47 about Deuteronomy 18, that God would raise up a prophet like unto me. And that was the prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah. 
And perhaps that's what he's thinking about. There are other prophecies, like in Isaiah 7, 14, being born of a virgin, that he would be the son, uh, that he would be the savior of the world, and that he would be the one who gave himself as a sacrifice for the iniquities of man, Isaiah 53, and a host of other passages. So he, what are his, his witnesses? He said, you can go listen to John. John will tell you that. Look at the Father, what the Father has said. Uh, look at the works that I've done, and then look at Old Testament scriptures. So here are four witnesses in addition to myself. Now let's finish the chapter 40 to 47. Let's talk about rejecting the witnesses, because that's what the rest of the chapter is about. The witnesses were called to record, and they were all rejected. Let's begin at verse 40. But you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. I did not receive honor, do not receive honor from men. But I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I've come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you'll receive. How do you believe who receive honor from one another and not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think I shall accuse you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you'd believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What does he say about rejecting the time? Well, he talks about the problem here, first of all. What is the problem? The problem was they rejected the Christ. He said, I, I worked a miracle here in your presence. You call that into question. I gave my defense of who I am. I gave testimony to myself, and I gave you four other evidences for the witnesses. Look at verse 40. But you were not willing to come to me that you might have life. You rejected me, and I do not receive honor from men. You rejected me. You've rejected the testimony. You rejected John. You rejected my miracles. You rejected the Father. And ultimately, you've rejected Moses. Now, what's the reason? Look at verse 42. Here's the reason. Because you really don't love God. You can talk about how, get this from the vantage point of the Jew, who says they believe and love God, but they reject the Christ. He said, no, 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 no. If you've rejected me, you really don't love God. Look at verse, verse 42. But I know you that you do not love God, that you do not have the love of God in you. You don't really love God. You didn't accept his word. You didn't accept his testimony. Here's the real problem. You don't have the love of God in your heart. That's the real problem. Now, the result, well, first of all, you forfeit eternal life. You did not come to me that you might have life. Verses 45 to 47, you've rejected even Moses, he said. And I thought you Jews talked about Moses, the great prophet. And you talk about the law of Moses, but you've even rejected Moses. So not only are you rejecting me, you're rejecting the Father and you're rejecting Moses. You have all of that against you. But here's the puzzle. This is 43 and 44. You receive one that comes in his own name, but you reject one who comes in the Father's name. Look again at verse 43. He said, I come in my Father's name. What do you mean he came in the Father? By his Father's authority. When he was ushered in, he was, it was by the authority of the Father. With the approval of the Father. At his baptism, there was the approval of the Father. At the transfiguration, there was the approval of the Father. The miracles that he's performing shows the approval of the Father. So I come with the approval of the Father, of the God of heaven, and you reject me. But one comes in his own name, and you accept him. Several commentators talk about 
and they give different numbers. Some said as many as 60-something men who came during the that time just before the Messiah, or during the time of the Messiah, who claimed themselves to be the Messiah. There's no endorsement of the Father. There's no evidence from John the Baptist. There's no evidence of the miracles. But he comes on the scene in his own name saying, I'm the Messiah. And many accepted them. He said, someone comes and says he's the Messiah. You'll accept that. But one comes in the Father's name and gives all the evidence and you reject him. That's the puzzle, he said. Now, let's conclude by noticing that what Jesus has just said, you stand condemned by Jesus himself, by the Father, and by Moses. They didn't care about Jesus. But they did care about the Father, and they did care about Moses. What he just showed to them is that you have rejected Moses himself, and you've rejected the Father when you reject me. These all go hand in hand together. So what have we seen? Witnesses for Christ, how witnessing works. True witnesses that he talks about. But here are the witnesses. Here's the evidence. Here's the ones who can tell you about Jesus. And so there was the witness of the miracle. There's the witness of himself. There were other witnesses, four that he calls to record. And then he says, you rejected the witness, and therefore you've rejected the Father, and you've even rejected Moses. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?